All right, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Due to the short week, and the pastors, as Spurgeon used to call, fainting fits of preparation, there's no title and there's no passage. What are we going to do this morning? Let's find out. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 1. We are going to look at verses 1 through 11, and I think they are on the back of your bulletin. You got a little more than you bargained for, too. I think it goes to 21. All right, Warren Buffett. Many of you know Warren Buffett. Probably all of you that are at the business school know Warren Buffett. He's an investing genius, right? In fact, if you had invested $1,000 in some of his initial business ventures, you'd have $20 million in the bank right now. Don't you hate hearing stuff like that? You know, when all the, the Internet stuff and all that stuff went through, if you would have invested in so-and-so, just $1, yeah. Well, he's currently the third richest man in the world. He's behind number one who? Bill Gates. Number two, Carlos Slim Halu, a Mexican businessman. And his net worth is $52 billion. Chump change for me. Uh, recently, in June of 2006, he made a commitment to give away all his fortune to charity. Every bit of it. Currently, right now, only a year later, 83% of that $52 billion is given away already. And he's still doing it. When asked, why in the world are you doing this? Why? Here's his answer. There is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Now, most of us in this room know there's only one way to get to heaven, and it's the way of Jesus Christ, right? But, but, was there one way for Jesus to get to heaven. Sure, we all know there's one way for us to get to heaven. Most of us, we read the Scriptures and we know that Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I'm the only way to get to the Father. I'm the narrow door. You've got to come to me to get to Him. We know that. Most of us know that. But have you ever thought, was that, what was the way that Jesus had to take to get to heaven? Did he even have to have a way to ascend to heaven? I mean, he's God, right? Can't he come and go as he pleases? Couldn't he be when he was on this earthly ministry? Couldn't he go up and come down and appear and disappear and do whatever he wanted, any time he wanted, go into heaven any way he wanted? Does it even matter what kind of way Jesus took to get to heaven? The Scriptures answer with a resounding, yes, it greatly matters. Your peace, your comfort, and this life and the next hangs on the way He went to heaven. In fact, if you're lost, you realize that you're lost in sin this morning, and you know that you're dirty, you know that you have a demanding heart, you know that that you're impure and you're guilty, and you know that in places in your life you can't change, and you know that in places it's impossible to change, and you know in places in your life you don't even want to change. The way Jesus ascended to heaven matters to you. You know that God is holy, you know that He's just, and you know that He sees you 24-7, right? 24 hours, 7 days a week. 
He watches. And that thought makes your blood turn cold. And God terrorizes you the thought of Him. The way Jesus ascended into heaven greatly matters to you. Those of you that are walking with God right now and you say, you know, my walk with God is stale. You read in Paul and you've read in Paul and you get to Galatians and it says, for freedom Christ has set you free. And you know, that just doesn't describe me right now. That, what describes me is more like living like a slave than li- living like a free person. And your walk seems stale and you seem like you're enslaved to desires of comfort and peace and ease to such an extent that when you go home at night, you just ignore your family in front of the TV. You feel like a slave more than you do a free person when you feel like you're a slave to so-and-so's approval all the time. So you're constantly filled with anxiety and worry about, well, what do they think of me? And you're always in reputation management to make sure your view of you is right in their eyes. You're also, you could be a slave to deep personal hurt right now. You can't let it go. You're not able to let it go. You don't want to let it go. How Jesus gets to heaven matters to you. If your head is hanging low right now because this life is hard, this life has hard situations, this life has hard circumstances, there's hard news that comes our way, there's hard communication issues in all of our relationships, there's hard relationships that we deal with in this life. This life is hard. It causes your head to hang low. How Jesus ascends into heaven matters to you. Everything hangs on how He ascended. Did you know that? That there is one way for Jesus to. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 1, let's look at verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, what was the first book? Luke. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. To them He presented Himself alive after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me. For John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And the men said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Father, we acknowledge that we come 
in various spiritual states this morning, and we come with many distractions in our minds and our hearts, and we come with the full realization that it is spiritual war, that the Word is easily snatched from us just as quickly as it lands on us. So, O Lord, would You at this moment preach the glories of Your Son to us? Would You give us eyes to see Him? Would You give us hearts that rest in Him? Would You protect us from the evil one? Allow the seed, the imperishable seed of the Word to land on good soil to bear a crop of eternal life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Acts 1 is the introduction to the whole book. It places the interpretive lens on Acts for the rest of the book. So when we get to chapter 1, what chapter 1 is doing, if you even have a casual reading of it, it just seems out of place. Once you hit chapter 2, you're moving into all kinds of actions in the birth and the growth of the church, right? But chapter 1 seems to just kind of hang there. And the reason why it just hangs there, it's an introduction to the rest of the book. It's giving you an interpretive pair of glasses that you must look through to see properly the rest of the book. So if you don't have the interpretive lenses of chapter 1 on you, when you look at Acts, Acts gets real blurry to you. You start to misread it and misapply it. And there are two interpretive lenses that chapter 1 puts upon you. The first lens we're going to look at today, the next lens we'll look at next week. The first lens, let's say the second lens, has to do with the apostolic ministry. What's taking place in chapter 1 is is the establishment of apostles and their witness to the world. But what's also happening here, which we're going to look at today, is what's called the ascension of Christ. Look at verse 9 through 11. And while they said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in heaven? These two angels are two witnesses. They're telling him that, telling these disciples, they're witnessing to the fact that Jesus went to heaven, but also it's setting the stage for the rest of the book. Jesus goes to heaven. And they're saying, based on two witnesses of God, he will come back. Now, gentlemen, get ready for the rest of the story. What happens between his first coming and his second coming? The book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament happens. Okay? Now, Jesus' ascent to heaven is the spring from which all the streams of Acts come from. You want to think of Jesus' ascension as the headwaters and streams come flowing out, gushing rivers of life come flowing out of this ascension. And that's what the rest of Acts is showing. The coming of the Holy Spirit is a stream that arises from the spring of the ascension. The birth of the church, the beginnings of the church, the apostolic foundation of the church, a stream that comes from the spring of the ascension. The ongoing growth of the church and even moving into now the New Testament and the later letters of the church, 
from Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians to the epistles and the letters of Peter down to Jude and Revelation, all these streams are flowing from the ascension. Everything is the fruit of the ascension. Jesus' ascension into heaven is an event that changed everything. Everything changed. It changed the Bible. It changed history. It is the last gospel event that Jesus performs. And I would probably say it's the forgotten event. We get the event at Christmas, Incarnation. Many of us get the event of a perfect life. Most of us get the event of a punishing death and then a powerful resurrection. But we forget the event of the ascension. What is the ascension? The ascension is a once-for-all final act of Jesus. It's a definitive finished work. It is Jesus actually taking His place at the throne of God. It is not something we do and it's not something that happens inside us. It's something Jesus does for us outside of us. So here's the crucial interpretive question for Acts and I'm not even going to answer it. I'm just going to ask it. And we'll go through Acts and we'll see if it's true. Are there happenings that accompany the ascension only in Acts? In other words, are there happenings in Acts that only accompany the ascension event and are not normal, everyday, ordinary, expected experiences in the Christian life? How you answer that question will send you down two different theologies. So I just want us to know, though we might differ, and you might answer it different from me, and I might answer it different from you, I want us to know that's the headwaters. That's the crucial question. It's not an issue when we start talking about the gifts of the Spirit and are there gifts of miracles and, you know, well, I believe in this and you believe in that. Everybody has a list of the gifts. Every Christian has a list of the gifts. Some lists are short, some lists are long. That's not the crucial issue. It's not the crucial issue with me. The crucial issue in the text, the crucial issue for the church is, are there events, happenings, that only accompany the ascension and are not to be repeated in ordinary expected events in the life of the church? That's a fair question. Is it not? It's kind of like this. We know that this happens in everyday life. I mean, the wedding event. Are there happenings that happen that, that accompany the wedding event that only accompany the wedding event? Bachelor parties? Party? I only have one, honey. Bridal brunches? There were many bridal brunches, though. What? Luncheon. There is a wedding rehearsal. There's a wedding reception. Can you imagine going to a wedding reception when there was no wedding? That's kind of weird, isn't it? So I'm just throwing the question out. And as we work through Acts, we're going to see, are there happenings that accompany the ascension only? Are there? Well, let's find out. 
Right now, what we're going to do is our point this morning, given that the Ascension is the last gospel event that changed everything, that the Ascension, when it happened, it became the spring from which all the streams of the New Testament come. The birth of the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit, all the reflection of the New Testament that's written down is the library of messages that came out of the event of the Ascension. So when Jesus ascended, now these New Testament writers said, look at this, can you believe this? They start describing it and telling us all the implications of it. A whole library opened up in heaven of messages because of this ascension. Given that that's true, because Acts tells us true, the rest of the Scriptures tells us that's true. What way did Jesus take to get there? What's the way? He ascended, great. But did He have to go a certain way? And that way has impacted your way into heaven. And that way impacts your stale Christianity this morning. That it actually, when you get the way, it breathes fresh spiritual air into a stale walk with God. What is the way that actually comforts you now when you need to experience forgiveness and you need to know that God is still on your side and you need to know that it's not about working for His favor because we intellectually we get it, but experientially we're constantly striving, constantly working. Because if I do and I attain some sort of standard, He's pleased with me and He does love me and then I can feel good about being around you guys. You know, I read the Scriptures this morning and I prayed, so now I feel confident to preach. Is that the way it's supposed to be? What about renewing and reviving you when you're burned out? The way Jesus took impacts that answer right there. But what about having a persistent, solid, tasting, real hope now of ultra-life to come in such a way that it strengthens you it helps you now. Well, the way Jesus took impacts you right now on that issue. So this is a major question. And it's a forgotten question. So what's the way that Jesus took to heaven? Let's look at it. Well, eight days after the, the first human words said it. In other words, up until this time, no human words uttered these words that were said. Whatever these words that were said... Eight days after it, this event happens. These three disciples, Peter, James, and John, find themselves up on a mountain with the one whom they just called eight days earlier, Peter did, the Christ of God. Those are the words. And when Peter said those words, the rocks and the trees instantaneously bowed. If you would have had eyes to see and would have been there, you would have seen every creature take a step back and fall down. How do we know this? Because when they came for him in the garden and they asked him who he was and he said he was the Christ of God, even his enemies took a step back and fell down. All creation will bow. So when Peter uttered those words eight days after he did, all of a sudden they're on a mountain and they're on a mountain with Jesus. And while they're on there, they see nothing but fantastic view above, an incredible view below, but their eyes were then riveted to a glory that outshone that. Because right before their eyes, Jesus started changing. 
And what does the text say? In Luke 9, it says that his face began to shine like the sun and that his clothing actually was dazzling in a whiteness that was whiter than white. Right before their eyes, the one who took off his robe of glory when he added his humanity is now with his humanity and with his divinity clothing himself again with the robe of glory that he's always had. And the disciples were just like, And then, two men show up. Two men they recognized since they were little kids. Two men that their parents used to talk about. Two men that were heroes to them their whole life. Moses and Elijah. The two revelatory agents of the law and the prophets. The representatives. The revelatory representatives standing there with Jesus. And they're glorified. Gone is the appearance that's trapped to this present evil age. Present is the appearance of the age to come. Glory, glory, glory. And that's when Peter said it. And the text even says, this is a dumb statement. That's a literal vernacular translation. Peter says, alright, why don't I get three tents? And I'll set up the three tents so that we can enjoy a campfire together and we can partake in this rich fellowship that's happening here and it appears to me that this is the beginning of the rulers of the kingdom of God and I'm so glad I'm in here. (laughs) And as soon as he said those words, that's when the cloud came. And the cloud descended upon them and enveloped them. And every single one of those men, their blood turned cold with fear. Oh, they knew what the cloud was. They read their Bibles. They heard Jesus teach. You see, this cloud was hovering over the waters, the chaotic waters of creation. This cloud, this cloud led Israel out of Egypt, split the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness. Fire at night, cloud by day, came behind and confused the Egyptians and closed the waters and judged the Egyptians. You see, the cloud was the visible, locational, terrifying presence of God. And this cloud thundered in the garden when it advanced toward Adam and Eve in judgment after the sin. This cloud advanced through the cut halves of the animals in a covenant that was made from Abraham. This cloud was so terrifying that Abraham had to be put to sleep because he can't be around when the cloud comes. This cloud took the Israelites into the promised land. This cloud descended upon Mount Sinai with flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and raging earthquake when God gave His revelation to Moses. And remember the red, the yellow police tape that was put around the mountain. That if you touch the mountain, that's your last touch on this earth. They knew this cloud came when Elijah was up on another mountain. And it was the same fire and storm and earthquake. And just like Moses, he had to be put in a cleft in order to stand in it. Oh, they knew what this cloud was. And when this cloud came, it was now all around them, a voice speaks from the cloud. And what the cloud says is the answer to the way that Jesus had to take to get to heaven. 
Now, isn't it fascinating? Because remember, in Luke 9, when this is taking place, Acts is a two-part book. Isn't it fascinating that in verse 9 of chapter 1 of Acts, the cloud is what came for Jesus and took Him to heaven. Now, if you were the disciples, you're probably thinking three of them, at least three of the twelve are thinking. I think that's, that's why they're still standing there watching. You know, it seems kind of... All the other... You know, what is it? Nine minus three. Nine plus three is twelve. Okay, the other nine, the other nine are looking, saying, why are you guys still looking? Because the other three are thinking, well, the last time this happened, Jesus was still there. The last time the cloud came and descended upon us and left, Jesus was still there. Maybe, maybe he's going to know. And that's why the two witnesses said he's gone. Now, what's happening? What does the cloud say? Well, in chapter 9 of Luke, let's look at it because I want to hear what we got to hear what it says because the cloud has the answer. We're trying to find out how does Jesus, what way does Jesus take to get into heaven? And does the way really matter? Does the way matter for you right now? Does the way matter for wherever you're at right now? Yes, it matters. Everything hangs on it. So let's look. Turn to the left to part one of this two-part story. Remember, Acts is part two. Luke is part one. Go to nine. Let's look at 9.35 and let's hear what the cloud says. As he was saying these things, if you want to see where we got what Peter said earlier, go up a little bit to 33 at the end, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. When Jesus was baptized and His earthly ministry began, an earthly ministry and a baptism that was now identifying Him with humanity. When His ministry began... And he is now baptized. He's identifying himself with humanity so that he can be the the perfect man in perfect relationship with God. When the cloud came after the baptism, the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am very pleased. Really pleased. Okay. The answer is in this word, son of God. That's the answer. So what does son of God mean? The Son means Jesus' eternal sonship. Is that what it means? In other words, God's saying, this is my divine Son. This is the, the second person in the Trinity. This is God in the flesh. Is that what He's saying? No, that's not the answer. The stunning answer, if you are still in Luke, I want you to keep turning to the left and go to Luke chapter 3 where we find Jesus' genealogy. What does Son of God mean? It does not mean, in this context, it is not referring to the second person in the Trinity, though that's true. This is my divine Son with whom I'm well pleased. There's a more stunning meaning here. The more stunning meaning is found in this this, uh, genealogy. If you go to verse 22, That's where you had the announcement of his baptism. You're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Look at 23. So Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age. It began with the baptism. Now, son of Joseph, son of Holy. Now mark your way down and we're going through all the sons. All the human sons. Genealogies. Now we go over to 38. 
son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is not divine. But Adam was the son of God. So something's happening here. And what's happening here is that Jesus' sonship that's announced from the cloud is not his divine sonship. It's his covenantal sonship. And you're saying, that still doesn't do it for me. What does that mean? Well, his covenantal sonship is referring to, well, let's look at it this way. Who else was called sons of God? Israel. Israel was called a son of God because they were in covenant with God. It's not that Israel were divine sons of God, divinity. It's that God had bound himself in such a tight relationship with Israel that that bond was so intimate that he called him his, his children. Sons and daughters of God. And that's why one of the greatest treasures of the gospel is a, is a doctrine called adoption. Because in adoption, God binds himself to you in such a deep and intimate way, graciously, that he calls you his sons and his daughters. But are you divine? No. You have a covenantal bond that's so intimate, God says, you're my child. I'm your father. Very powerful, very intimate. Now, here's where it all hangs. Though Israel... And you and me had a binding relationship or a covenantal sonship that was based on grace. Jesus had a binding relationship with the Father based on perfect obedience. Loyal, loving, perfect obedience. And the way He ascended into heaven was by perfectly obeying the Father. Now, I'm not gonna, we're not going to take you there. I'm going to summarize it real quick here. When Paul interprets the ascension, this is what he says. He says, look, he came in the flesh and he identified with humanity in Philippians 2. He came in the likeness of humanity. Why? And was obedient his whole life, even to the point of Death, And then the next word in the, in the verse says, Therefore, God exalted him. Don't miss the therefore. The reason why God resurrected Jesus and exalted Jesus and made him king over everything, the Son of God in whom he is very pleased, is because this Son obeyed. Because this Son was loyal. Because this Son was faithful every day of his life, even to the point of death. And God said, I will exalt him to my right hand. Enter the kingdom, obedient son. And this is the way it had to be. Remember, you, you now start hearing things that Jesus says in a little more different light. Remember when Jesus was on this earth and he said, listen to his disciples, you guys need to understand, he said to them, my food, the very nourishment of my life, is to do the will of Him who sent me. When He got to the end of His earthly ministry, this is the only man in all of history that could say this. He turned and He says to His Father, He says, I have glorified you on earth. 
I have glorified your name in all that I do. The only one that could say this. His obedience was so loyal. His obedience was so perfect. His obedience was so loving that when he was in the wilderness and the evil one tempted him, he, unlike Adam, resisted the evil one. But how did he resist him? It is written. The first Adam, the snake came in. The first Adam was supposed to be loyal and obedient and was supposed to say, it is written, squash. And Jesus does it. And then remember when we get to the final garden, the garden where he's at a rock, the garden where he is in agony, not because he's going to die physically. Many people have died physically, honorable, praiseworthy deaths. Many. Christian, unchristian alike. The reason why he said, take this cup from me, is because he's going to drink the wrath and curse of God. But how did he respond? But not my will, your will be done. Do you see this? Do you see that the way that Jesus got to heaven, the way that Jesus actually ascended, is because he perfectly obeyed? And the reason why it had to be this way is because Adam failed to, Israel failed to, and you failed to. It has to be this way. He had to be a loyal, loving, obedient son because we are not loyal, loving, obedient sons and daughters. By ascending to heaven, by the way of perfect obedience, what he did is he took you every step along the way. By becoming a covenantal son, he clothed himself with humanity and he bound himself to God on behalf of fallen humanity and he said, I will represent them, Father. I will substitute myself for them, Father. I will live a perfect, loyal, loving, obedient life, Father, even unto death for them. And I will take them through my perfect life so they have righteousness. I will take them through my punishing death so that their unrighteousness, their unloyalty is paid for. And you will rise me from the dead and seat me at the right hand of the throne of God. And Paul will say, do you see where you're seated? You're seated with him. Set your minds on things above where he is seated. Why? Because that's where you are. So what happens is, is that his obedience now rescues those of us who are under the terror of God's holy and just wrath. All who trust him. Because he was obedient even unto death. What his death does is his death goes in and it rescues. His death, it says that he takes the wrath and curse of God. Not one drop from that cup lands on you when you trust him. So he does it. So his death, his obedient death, even unto death, rescues you from the wrath and curse of God. So the way he got to heaven, obedience unto death, matters to you. 
It takes away God's wrath. Not only that, it matters in this way. He goes in and He rescues you from the dominion of darkness and from the power of sin. You're transferred from one kingdom with a dark prince into a kingdom of light in which the king reigns. And then finally, one day, this rescue will actually mean that one day the presence of sin in you right now will be gone. And what a hope that is. That what you struggle with now its power, its dominion is crushed right now. One day its presence will be completely eradicated from you. Tremendous hope. But not only that, here's these great theological messages that come throughout the Bible. He not only by his obedience did he rescue you from something, he rescued you to something. He rescued you to God. You have peace with God. Peace. Only on the basis of his obedience. You see how good news this is, Christians. When you're thinking through peace in your own life and you're thinking through the situations in your life and circumstances that scream at you and hit you and say, no peace, storms only. And you try to find peace and you try to find peace in the situation, so that's why you seize control of it. You try to control your situations. You try to run from your situations. you got your feelings that are all out of whack, so you listen to your feelings to have peace and you try to make your feelings be peaceful. But what if in the midst of that you say, no, peace is based on his obedience alone. I get peace because he did it. So right now you have peace with God. Right now you have intimacy with God. Right now you have communion and fellowship with God. That's a message called reconciliation. Right now God accepts you. Right now God has favor on you. No more, no less complete, final, and full, no matter what happens in your day. No matter what happens tomorrow. That's a message called justification. And then one day, heaven will open up itself and you'll enter in the same way He did. And you'll be glorified. Ultra life. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationships with each other. Perfect relationship with the world all around us. That's called glorification. And so what happens is, is when Jesus was perfectly obeying, He's taking you every step of the way with Him. And right now, where is He? Enthroned. And so are you. And that's why the Bible says over and over again, and we pass over those verses because they don't mean much to us, He's made you a kingdom of princes and princesses, of priests. You are kings. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, so we've answered the question. We answered the way we began. The lens that we have to look at, when we start looking at the rest of Acts, the first lens to look at the rest of Acts is the ascension. The ascension is the center of the book. The ascension is the center of the rest of the New Testament. Because of this event, the ascension, there are so many messages that it took the rest of the New Testament to tell us about the implications of what just happened. And if we begin to look through Acts through the lens of the ascension, we're going to start reading Acts rightly. We're going to start applying Acts rightly. So what I want us to answer finally, and this is how we're going to end. So what? What should this do to you? If Jesus had to be... The way of Jesus to get to heaven was by the way of perfect obedience to the Father. What should that do to us right now? The way of perfect obedience to the Father taking you every step of the way, what should it do to you? 
Here's how I'm going to answer that. It's on my best bookshelf. I've already mentioned it right when I got back. Many of you know what it is because I've already given it to you or told you to read it. I highly recommend it. If you're easily offended by language, forget that I ever recommended it to you. All right? It's called Lone Survivor, the eyewitness account of Operation Red Wing and the Lost Heroes of SEAL Team 10. The book starts out by dropping you in the SEAL warrior culture. All right? It drops you in the culture, then takes you to the operation in which all the heroics happen. But it takes you into the culture to give you an ethic, an ethos that's seared into the soul of these Navy SEALs for what happens. And very quickly, you learn in the culture that they prize what's called teamwork. In fact, you are assigned right from the beginning a swim buddy. And if you leave one to two feet your swim buddy, you are punished severely. So if, you're, if you have to jump in the, the lake or what was then the 60-degree frozen Pacific Ocean, your swim buddy had to go with you. If he had to go, you had to go. If he had to roll in the dirt, you had to roll in the dirt. If he had to do 50 push-ups, you had to do 50 push-ups. If he had to run three miles, you have to run three miles. If you do, he does. Right from the beginning, you get a swim buddy, and you never leave your swim buddy for five weeks of your training. And then this ethos gets real quick. By the time the operation part of the book happens, your vision of what a SEAL's life is is real clear. Here it is. You are a team. You never train alone. You never fight alone. And God willing, you will never die alone. So when Operation Red Wing turned south and you got four SEALs surrounded by 200 Taliban, this uh, one SEAL said, I was never afraid any time during that time. Can you imagine? 200 Taliban screaming, shooting, bullets flying everywhere, guys getting hit, and this guy that wrote the book says, I was never afraid because I was with my team. He says, the first time I got afraid in my whole life as a Navy SEAL of eight years was when they were dead. And I was all alone. Thus the title of the book, Lone Survivor. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, you need to know that you are never, never alone. Because Jesus took the way of perfect obedience. He took you every step of the way with Him. He never left you alone. From the incarnation to the perfect life, to His death on the cross, to the resurrection, and to the ascension, He takes you with Him. You are never alone. Never. So in your doubts, when you doubt God's love and goodness, Jesus is with you. You're never alone. In your stale walk of God, Jesus is with you. You're never alone. When you need to experience God's forgiveness and you need to experience His grace in your life, Jesus is with you. You're never alone. When you lack love for a certain person and you lack patience in a certain area and you're in the midst of hellish circumstances and situations, Jesus is with you. You're never alone. When your head hangs low, Jesus is with you. You're never alone. Now I want to say one word finally to the spiritual seeker here. 
you should know, and it's hard for me to say this, you are alone. In your guilt and in your sin, you're alone. In sin that terrorizes you and is self-destroying you and destroying your relationships and destroying everything you touch, you're alone. In your heartaches and in your hard times, you're alone. And in a hopeless future, you are alone. So what is this book doing right from the beginning? This book is saying to every single reader, there is one who obeyed perfectly the Father for those who don't. And that was the way that God exalted him to heaven, taking you every step along the way. So trust him. Trust him, those of you that don't know him. And you'll never be alone in your life, in your death, and on that great day. And those of you that do know Him, trust Him now, right now, because He is exalted, He is King. And you're not alone. Take that into your soul. Amen.